Climate is enormous. It intersects with everything. You can't speak of climate without talking about colonisation, about how capitalism is structured and what it's been doing for 500 years. You can't talk about climate without talking about patriarchy. All of these things are woven together very densely. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Opening season five with this episode seems fitting, with this week's release of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's damning report that found escape from human-caused climate change is no longer possible. The report tells us that even if Earth's climate was stabilised in the near future, some of the climate change-induced damage could not be reversed in centuries or even millennia. We should expect worse fires, longer droughts and more severe floods. For Australia, the report was particularly damning. While the government has committed to reducing emissions, they continue to approve coal and gas projects. This is in stark contrast to the UN Secretary-General's comments that the IPCC report was a code red for humanity and must sound a death knell for the coal and fossil fuel industry before they destroy our planet. So it's fitting that my guest today is Scott Ludlam, former Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens and Senator from 2008 to 2017. Scott is a lifelong climate activist and in his wonderful and confronting first book, Full Circle, he conducts a deep exploration of the failures of the financial and political systems that have led us to this place in time, where political human and natural systems are on the verge of collapse. While the book is sobering, Scott also asks, how can we make our systems more humane, regenerative, and more in tune with nature? Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Scott. Thank you for the invitation. Lovely to have you here. I'm going to jump right in and ask you a question I ask all of my guests. What does doing good mean to you personally? Well, I think it what it means for me personally is find out where it is that you sit in the world, what it is that you love, the things that you're good at, the things that you can be supported in doing. And most of all, I suppose, in the moment that we find ourselves in, what is it that the world needs us to do? So this probably sounds like something I read on a Hallmark card. This is a concept I came across a little while ago called Ikigai, which is this Japanese concept of what is it that makes you happy? Mostly it's going to be a combination of those things. Absolutely. Do you think that doing good is something that you feel should be expressed in kind of all aspects of daily life? Or is it something that, you know, can be siloed off into a career or a hobby or volunteering, for example? I don't think it can be siloed, but also I don't know whether it's something that expresses in every single moment of our lives. I don't know if I'm being good when I'm walking the dog. At that moment, I'm just walking the dog. Dog seems to like it. I don't think, though, that if you're mean-spirited in your private life, that necessarily you're going to be fantastic at doing good in larger ways, but it's probably different for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And how would you say that you express your doing good? I would be extremely awkward to express it in those terms. I would probably go to others to find out how they think I do it. I um, think it's probably a little bit difficult to tell on a personal level without sounding like a completely precocious little brat. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I can see that. How has your concept of doing good or what is good evolved over time in terms of your lifetime and your career? Oh, look, I'm not sure if it has in a huge way. I just don't go around in the world thinking of myself as doing good. So I'm struggling actually, because this is not my self-perception at all. No, that's okay. What if we think about it kind of in terms of, you know, obviously you've got a long history of activism and, and advocacy. I share that. And over the course of my career, I guess I've learned that the things that I believed and thought were good and right in that sense were not necessarily the right way to go about things and, and the lessons learned over time. I think a significant one for me has been this idea of what these days people call the white saviour complex of like not rushing into something, feeling like at last the do-gooder has arrived, I'm here to fix stuff, I'm here to talk over other people. For a lot of white environmentalists, that probably takes a really rude awakening, hopefully really early in your career or in your in your path of your life. For me, it happened in 1998, as a white environmentalist coming up from down south into Kakadu, where there was a uranium mine blockade, and immediately being given a passport by the traditional owners up there that made it really super clear that you're a guest, you're on country. This is not about capitalism. It's not about the global nuclear industry. It's not about what you thought it was. It's not about wilderness protection. It's a land rights struggle. It's a self-determination struggle, and we're running this. That for me was just a great, powerful and very timely shock that I've probably carried with me the whole time. Don't rush in feeling like you're the one with all the answers. People have been at this for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that that serves you better in terms of the outcomes that you're trying to achieve if you can keep that in the back of your mind? It does, particularly if you're somebody in my role. Like I've been given this incredible platform from time to time as an advocate for a short spell as a legislator, as an activist in different contexts. But particularly if you're working with First Nations people, you're a guest on their land, it's a polite way of putting it, and they've been at this for generations. The last thing they need is, is for people to fly over the horizon telling them how to, how to run their affairs and, and run their business. I think that's something that we're all going to need to accommodate, but particularly people working on on campaigns for environmental protection where you turn the prism just slightly sideways and these are self-determination campaigns. These are about the ability of people to determine what happens on their land, whatever you might think about fracking or uranium mining or whatever the work is. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to come back to that and dig into it further. But first, you've just released your first book, Full Circle, A Search for the World That Comes Next. Huge congratulations. I've been immersed in it for the past few days and and what a wonderful thing you've created. Thank you. Oh, that is really nice to hear and still very strange to hear. It's week one and so I'm still in the process of this, this very private introspective suddenly being splattered all over the landscape and all over the internet. It's nice, but it's a it's a shock. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. That's great. No, I love it. Can you tell us what it's essentially about and why you wrote it in the first place? Maybe let's start with the why first and then we'll try to get to the what. The why is that I've struggled for years with big political questions and what people in these circles sometimes call theory of change. Like what is it that we think if we if we get these things right, if we do work in this kind of way, that we'll have the outcome that we're seeking. And I spilled out of politics in 2017, a bit unexpectedly, with 
a lot of quite big unanswered questions and very well aware that in that line of work, you don't really get time to have deep thoughts. We're just running on adrenaline for nine years, confronting emergencies of other people's making. You don't have time to think, certainly not about this kind of stuff. So that's the why I wanted to set down some of the thoughts that have been following me around for years. I wanted to talk to people much smarter and more experienced than me about what they thought about these things. And that gives you this kind of pastiche, I suppose, of geohistory, of this kind of love letter to the planet concept of if we find ourselves in, in a climate emergency, we're dealing with something immeasurably deep and old. We're dealing with a geological story. We're writing this incendiary new chapter very, very quickly and thoughtlessly. But it's, it's difficult to engage with it without pausing to just be aware of what it is that we're messing with and its history. So that is the first strand. The second strand of it is this concept of coins of the Anthropocene, the concept of a of a, an industrial growth economy that's parasitic, it's extractive, it is immensely destructive of people and planet and culture and country. What's the shape of it? How is it structured? How does it operate? What's its operating system? The third strand is, is there, there's clearly an art to social movements and people who've been confronting that for centuries. Is there a science of it? Is there anything systematic that we can say about waves of transgression and rebellion through history? There's clearly patterns there that are interesting, but are any of these patterns instructive? Could we use them to change strategy if we're aware of what it is that we're engaged in? That only works if you go out and talk to people who are involved in these struggles. So I worked quite hard to make sure I was way out of my comfort zone talking to people as far from home as I could get so that there's quite a few stories in there while I was on the road of people confronting similar challenges by the same economic structures and the same people in quite distant parts of the world. And that leads to the fifth strand, which is, well, what happens if we all win? What would happen if all these people engaged in all these different dimensions of struggle around the world? What if we won? What's the world that comes next if these people manage to pull it off all at roughly the same time? So, there's patches of the book that are dark, that are heavy, that cause me to pause a lot. But I think ultimately it's quite optimistic because, of course, that vision of the world that comes next, even though everybody's vision of it's very different, it's quite exciting. And you can we can see it arising all around us. Absolutely. And look, those strands all come through very, very strongly in the book. And I, I love how you weave that deep history and ecology in with these modern structures and concepts and systems that we all exist within. I want to go deeper into the climate change thread and this urgency with which we have to take action on it. And it it seems that more and more people are taking action, but something that often comes up and frustrates people is that the information, the urgency is not new. Humans have been damaging the environment for years and people, including those from First Nations communities, have been actively preserving and protecting the environment for thousands of years. Why are we listening now? Why has the urgency hit that tipping point now? I guess it depends who you mean by we. Some of us are desperately late to the struggle. And as you say, some of us have been at this for generations. And so I think there's a at these kind of awakenings or these moments where people switch on to exactly how much danger we're in, they come in waves, they come in cascades, and sociologists and systems theories have established that those waves propagate in much the same way as earthquakes and forest fires and epidemics for that matter. 
I found that fascinating. The moment I clocked that there's this whole body of study that looks at how these pressurized, slowly driven systems in contention occasionally ignite with what look like spontaneous waves of collapse and, and renewal. The idea that we might actually be able to map social contention into those, and we can, I just found really quite energizing if that's the kind of struggle that we're involved in. And for me, when you get a, a cascade like Extinction Rebellion or like the school strike, it's a sign that the system's been pressurized to a certain point. Somebody comes up with a bright idea or a novel way of, of running the argument or of confronting these power structures. It can be something as innocuous as a teenager with a piece of cardboard on the steps of parliament. Two years later, there's 7 million kids on strike. They're working with trade unionists, they're working with traditional NGOs, they're working with First Nations people, they are in every time zone on the planet. That's the kind of cascade that I'm fascinated by. And the dynamics of those you can plot in a very diverse range of different contexts. Yeah, just going off on that tangent, I love in the book how you talk about democracy and politics as, as a pressure valve that's designed to go off. And I'm assuming that's coming from that systems thinking that you're talking about. It is. There's an ecologist who passed away a short time ago called Crawford Stanley Holling and him and his team have kind of proved up this model of what they call adaptive cycles, which is this fourfold cycle of collapse and renewal. You know, it's a theory of how things emerge, how they get established, how they become institutionalized and brittle, go into a collapse phase, which is where then the rebuilding kind of begins. And that's the phase where innovation can happen, where loose or loopy ideas can get established, where innovators can thrive when there's been some kind of disturbance in the system. He writes in a paper from nearly 20 years ago that democracies or democratic political systems have found a way of forestalling really big crashes by institutionalizing them at a shallower level. So you can burn a regime down without necessarily chopping off a whole pile of aristocratic heads in this process of, of a formal election. And in a healthy democracy, that can be done non-violently. It can be done in a really premeditated way if people are well-informed, if they're well-enfranchised and everybody's getting a vote, if information is shared relatively freely, and if the playing field is free of oligarchs spending enormous quantities of money to tilt the playing field so you can see where this is going. In those idealized societies, you don't need to chop people's heads off. There's no repetition of the cycle of kind of chaotic revolutionary activity because there's a healthy pressure valve there. So what happens in the real world is these pressure valves, such as they are, have been hijacked and defaced by special interests, we, we would call them in this place and time, up to a point where I consider Australia suffering a form of state capture at the hands of the resources sector and particularly the, the fossil and the energy sector, uranium, coal, oil, gas. So what happens to the pressure valve when you, you shut it down? It looks like it's still there. We still vote. There's still people of very good heart, friends and colleagues of mine in there fighting the fight. But it doesn't matter what happens up to a point when the coal and gas industries are still going to have a working majority on the floor of parliament, no matter which of the two major parties wins. That's not how most people think democracy works. We should look that right in the face. We should name that and we should work out what to do about it. And is that what you mean by state capture, the role of these organisations in politics? Yeah, state capture is a concept I came across in South Africa in 2017 and they named it as this place along the slide from corruption to oligarchy. It's a place in the middle. It's much more systematic 
than corruption. It's deep-seated. No laws are being broken. Nobody's going to jail. But clearly, it's not a full oligarchy. We're, we're free to have this conversation. It's not placing either of us at risk. People are free to report on it. I'm racing all over town signing books. I'm not being followed around by secret police. It's a place in the middle where there's limited degrees of freedom where we can have the conversation and we can protect ourselves collectively. But it's clearly more entrenched than ordinary corruption. They called it state capture, and the phrase really grabbed me. There's all sorts of places around the world where you could consider that that's happened. I think it would be good for Australians to have that conversation. Absolutely. So I want to go back to climate change and talk about how, while there's a very welcome, you know, increased attention on the climate catastrophe that we're facing, what kind of damage can be caused by a sudden influx of educated middle class and largely white people coming into a movement that has its own structures and rhythms and and objectives? Well, there can be a really healthy tension there and more experienced organisers with an Extinction Rebellion are kind of confronting that at the moment because what you want is an influx of people. That's what you're trying to pull off. That's the purpose of the work. But these people aren't automatically going to share your politics. They're going to be there because they are as worried about climate change as you are but they may have very different views of what needs to be done. They may have very different views of what the climate emergency intersects with. And so for XR, it's been quite a challenge because it did attract a huge number of people to kind of decolonize the movement here in Australia, firstly, because it's been the DNA comes from from the UK and that's a different context to ours. That that has taken a while. For people to sort of set aside maybe some of the naive approaches to police. These would be folks like me 20 years ago who came into a movement thinking the police are there to protect us, and they're not. They'll lie. They will beat the shit out of us, and they will book us for stuff that they know is never going to stand up in court just to get us out of the way. They're not our friends. They're an important piece of the puzzle. And the last thing, I guess, and perhaps most importantly for people working in the climate space, climate is enormous. It intersects with everything. You can't speak of climate without talking about colonisation, about how capitalism is structured and what it's been doing for 500 years. You can't talk about climate without talking about patriarchy. All of these things are woven together very densely. For me, it gives me hope. Once my eyes had kind of been opened to that, I realised, but that means we're all in this same fight. That means there's millions of us. We're not just this narrow little social movement trying to ring the bell around energy policy. This is deep and old. It's got a lot of momentum behind it. It's got a lot of wisdom embedded in it. And that's how I think we can win. What do you think gets missed in, you know, having a sudden influx of people? Are we at risk of kind of losing traditional preservation and protection systems that are being implemented by First Nations peoples, for example? Yeah, could do. I think there is a lot of space in climate organising for unintended consequences. If you go back even not that far away, groups organising for the protection of wilderness in Australia and in other parts of the world, you would have mob tell you straight to your face, this place isn't wild. You know, there's no wilderness here. This place was cultivated. There were custodians going back many hundreds of generations And environmentalism in some parts of the world, including here, has been used as another tool of dispossession to get people the hell off their land so that white people can go, you know, shoot elephants or shoot photographs or or whatever. There's plenty of room for unintended consequences if we're just talking over other people. Thinking about solutions and, and I guess the natural human 
inclination to try to find a solution and a simple solution. Do you think there's too much of a focus on on those so-called easy solutions, the ones that maybe band-aid the deeper problems? And when I say that, I'm talking about the focus on solar or wind power, for example. Is it enough to just go down that road or does a single-minded focus on those type of solutions ignore the systemic and structural issues that got us in here in the first place like colonialism inequality racism and and dare I say capitalism you dare you should dare I feel like you're perilously close to answering your own question there I I do (laughs) I do feel that there's a narrow part of the climate movement that's focused on energy politics right and on how to shift the power of coal and gas incumbents in this country so that there's space for the clean energy revolution to arrive and to flourish. And that's powerful work. It's very, very necessary. And we should celebrate just how rapidly these new energy technologies are taking off. Because in the long view, it's as though industrial societies learned how to photosynthesize. We're not burning fuel to keep the lights on anymore. We're doing what trees do. That's actually really exciting. It's a very different industrial model. But If all you're trying to do is just a straightforward one-for-one substitution of fossil burning plant with renewable plant while keeping the rest of society exactly as it is, well, the rest of society is actually hurtling towards disaster anyway. For my mind, if we're still on this growth path, if we're still trying to double everything every 25 years, only now we're going to do it with solar panels, we're still going to smash into the wall. So yes, it is absolutely necessary if we go looking for answers in places that aren't simplistic, that you can't put on a bumper sticker. These whole fields of regenerative economics or circular economics or steady state economics that look at reprogramming our economic structures and our urban metabolic structures so that they function more like part of the biosphere that hosts them, which means they are behaving like ecosystems. Nothing comes in that's not renewable. Nothing comes out that's not recyclable or biodegradable. They're quite simple rules. Let's not oversimplify them, but they're relatively simple rules that have served ecosystems and very simple organisms for 4 billion years. We can play in that space. So what happens when we don't tackle the problem from all angles. You know, if if we think about, for example, the immediate need for different forms of energy, like solar energy and and wind turbines, what happens in 25 years, for example, when those solar panels are no longer usable and the wind turbines are not functioning? What happens to the materials and the equipment that's used to make those? They all end up in landfill. It all ends up in a gigantic pile. That's what we're building at the moment. And, you know, we're building it in a hurry. But there are studies already underway of how to disassemble, how to design things in this cradle-to-cradle production cycle model, how to design things that are able to be disassembled at the end of the product life. So something like a solar panel, that's all the way down the bottom of the cost curve now. It started out a thousand times more expensive than it is. It's incredibly cheap to get electrons to flow along a wire now through PV. The design expertise now, rather than necessarily squeezing another couple of decimal places out of efficiency, should be how do we build these things out of materials that can just fold back into production cycles? Same for wind, same for batteries. And then you're starting to look at genuine circular economic principles. The planet isn't 10 feet deep in leaves because leaves biodegrade when they're done. That's it. That's the challenge. They need to biodegrade or you need to be able to delaminate them and turn them into new PV panels, preferably in automated plants so that everybody can have an extra day off work. 
Like, let's really, let's fold all these things in together. We don't want people on minimum wage doing this stuff as piecework, like we stitch shoes together. Just automate that shit if you can and have another day off work. That's that's the agenda here. Do you think there's enough of an imperative for corporations to go down that path? I mean, obviously the imperative is the survival of us as humans and our planet, but sadly that doesn't seem enough in many cases. Do you think there's enough there to go down that path? Well, within that narrow industry sector, there is. But the problem with just leaving it to corporations is they chase a very narrow set of incentives. They're chasing a rate of return on investment. So there's a narrow section of global capitalism that's now quite interested in putting up solar and wind because there is a return on investment there. There are other parts, huge parts and deeply entrenched parts of that structure that appear to be trying to render us extinct as rapidly as they can. So we can't leave it to investors to solve this for us. In the friendly sectors, the friendly parts of industry, they've got a tremendously powerful role to play and I'm very encouraging of that, but this is not something that capitalism knows how to fix. The only thing that our economy knows how to do at the moment is be twice as aggressive in 25 years' time. And that game is about to come to an end, not because of greenies, but because of geology, just because of what the atmosphere is doing. Absolutely. I want to talk about scale. One person can do all the so-called right things for a lifetime around being a good person, a good human, a good environmentalist. But does it count if we don't change these systems and structures that brought us here and keep us here? Why do it at all as one person? Yeah, well, the fossil industries and their communications and research people figured out a while ago, they invented these concepts of our ecological footprint so as to shift the blame back onto us. One of my favourite slash most loathed examples is BP's account tweeting a carbon footprint calculator a year or two ago so that we could find out where we stand and so that people could make an individual contribution. Now, this is a global oil major that is still aggressively drilling for oil and gas. It knows exactly what it's doing. It's trying to burn as much of this stuff and return as much of a profit on it as it can before it's closed down. But it's telling us to make a difference individually. Now, I recycle. I live on a largely plant-based diet. I catch the bus and like, let's not crap on all the good things that we do need to do in terms of lifestyle. Let's also not pretend that that's enough. A hundred global corporations are responsible for about 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. Let's name names and not bullshit. A hundred global corporations are responsible for about 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. Let's name names and not bullshit that us recycling our coffee cups is going to get us all the way over the line. Scott, in the book, you talk about borders and you talk about it in the context of a successful activism that you were involved in that was protecting an Australian forest a long time ago. I think it was Wattle Forest and how while this solved the problem at a local level, the benefits of of solving that problem are really constrained within the borders of Australia or even the borders of the state that you were in. Stopping logging here doesn't decrease demand for wood products globally. Production just moves to places with less regulation and more destruction. It's the very definition of a a wicked problem. So I'm interested if you can kind of expand on that a little bit around this idea of borders or boundaries. Yeah, I mean, it's a theme that I keep coming back to, that there's no kind of form of green nationalism that gets us out of the jam that we're in. We could turn Australia into this 
vegan clean energy powerhouse but if it's surrounded by drones and razor wire it wouldn't be worth living in and it also wouldn't last for very long and yet there's the potential for the right to grab some of these environmental tropes and and use them against people far from here which we need to be very aware of in the context of native forest logging it's obvious that there's still horrendous destruction being wrought on australia's forests from the southwest of wa to tassie to the east coast so it's not that we fixed it here it's that and I noticed this in anti-nuclear work as well, we closed, practically bankrupted the uranium sector in Australia, certainly the small end, the medium-sized end. A bunch of those guys went to Namibia and they went to Malawi and set up these nasty, polluting uranium mines over there. And the same has happened with forestry because we do have to be aware of scale. Capitalism operates in a planetary way. It long ago overran nation state borders. And yet when we get forest protection agreements set up, they do tend to only exist within, within particular boundaries. So what this says to me is don't stop doing the work of protecting forests here, obviously, but we have to be aware that what we're confronting now is a planetary scale disaster and it requires solidarity across borders. It requires effectively a form of planetary mutual aid that barely exists. It's this huge missing piece of the puzzle. It's so big, we don't really know that it's there. Yeah. And you do talk about the idea of boundaries and borders being a social construct, but actually linking it back to deep history and and ecology and that boundaries themselves are an inherent part of how life works. Do you think that's the answer, is coming back to or acknowledging that and that mutual aid approach? I think that's a really big part of it. It's one of the essential things that I feel like we're lacking in the climate space, particularly, or in the global justice space. At various times through modern history, there have been attempts at forming internationals or forming these big cross-border alliances of solidarity where we use our voices and our freedoms here to help protect people in other parts of the world and help raise their voices. And it's happening again, that surge is kind of appearing again from the margins, but it doesn't have the capacity that it's going to need to have. So that idea of boundaries and borders going back right through geohistory is something that fascinates me. There's nothing automatically sinister or unhealthy around good borders, as psychologists would speak of them, or around, you know, the personal integrity of of skin, of semi-permeable boundaries is something that kind of, that exists right back through evolutionary history. What I guess I'm arguing, and this is, look, this is looking at it really in terms of something that's really just metaphor, is that we need a planetary scale identity. We're a collection of nested identities from our favorite sports team or our family or whatever national allegiance we claim or our religious identities. What's lacking is a planetary species-wide form of identity. And developing that or what people would have called cosmopolitanism, I think is an essential link to surviving the next couple of decades. There's only one family tree. There's only one human species. There's only one planet. It's not that the borders are irrelevant. They're far from irrelevant. But the boundary that matters most now is the one that encloses this whole thing. I want to pick up on a term that you used before, green nationalism. So divisiveness, polarisation and greenwashing, the co-opting of the green agenda by the political right. I know that this is this is quite common in other countries or it's emerging in other places, but how far away from this are we in Australia, really? 
I reckon we're a lot closer than it looks. The corporate right has turned climate and energy politics into something of a culture war, which has left the left, the so-called left, such as it is, holding the bag on climate, that the left are meant to be the ones who, who care about climate and ecology and all these kind of stuff, and the right are concerned with with much weightier things and, and more masculine and important things. Now, that's not a polarisation that's permanent, that's very artificial, it's very constructed, it's bullshit. But it's been constructed that way here because we import so much of our politics from the US, where that's the way that it's been set up there. In Europe, the far right or Marine Le Pen's party, they have realised just what a gift climate anxieties are for xenophobes, because you can use that to completely restructure your arguments around borders and around clamping down on movement of people. You can pitch that along ecological lines, which completely confuses the politics, surprises people, gives you a whole new set of talking points, and kind of weaponizes environmental anxieties. Now, I don't think the people who are running this place are stupid. I think they're malevolent and awful, but they're not stupid. I think it's only a matter of time as the climate crisis steepens before they start borrowing these tropes and and using them in service to xenophobia. Like your kids kind of see it coming. We have to get in front of that. We have to name it before it's even really emerged and try and shut it down. Which I guess brings me to where to from here, you know, as you mentioned at the start, what happens if these small groups and people manage to come together in the right way at the right time? Where to? Well, let's find out. What would a planetary community that had figured and resolved these issues of energy and poverty and communications and language translation and food security and wealth inequality, what would a planetary community that actually really resolved those things look like? In in the places, in the little pockets and places where elements of this agenda have been worked out, it looks gorgeous. You know, it's extraordinary. That's what's there for us. That's what I would consider to be the world that comes next, is something where we're not burning through fossil fuels and burning through human beings in an extractive way in order to survive. We have everything we need. We're not waiting for some kind of Star Trek invention. It's a political recombination that we're waiting for. It hasn't happened yet at a planetary scale. But let's find out. Let's find out. And are we are we learning from these little pockets that you talk about? Is there a way to scale those kind of places and ways of being? I think there is. I think there absolutely is. There's no reason at all why we can't do that. And I find causes of optimism everywhere I look. Even if we look at the way that the energy debate's being run here in Australia compared to how it was even 10 years ago, it's a mainstream topic of conversation now, not not is coal and oil and gas being phased out, but when? How steep is the curve down? Uh, We've come an enormous distance in 10 years. The conversation around sovereignty in this country is vastly more mature than it's been in the past. The conversation around misogyny and rape culture at the highest levels of Australian society, that got blown open a year or two ago, and that's not going to be reset either. The conversation about Black Lives Matter and about deaths in custody. Like all of these things compared with the little shoe boxes that they were stuffed into 10 or 20 years ago, these are now live, raw conversations that are being had in a way that just wasn't there before. So yes, I, I believe absolutely that these things can scale. We're in the midst of it. I want to pull the lens back in to you actually and, and ask you, what do you find most rewarding about what you do and and conversely 
Well, this is a new thing for me. I've never written a book before. And so it's been three years of introspection, you know, the travel and talking to people, but a lot of introspection and a lot of sitting around by myself or with the help of a handful of friends and allies trying to nut this thing out. And so this next bit is actually a bit unknown to me. I don't know. A lot of books just kind of disappear without trace. I think it's my job now to chase this one around the country, talking to anybody who wants to talk about it. And the the ones that are, I'm really looking forward to are when activists and social movements and people who think about this stuff in the course of their work get a hold of it, dismantle it, rip out the bits they don't like, start improvising that's when it's going to get really interesting for me. Or when we start seeing some of these ideas thrown into the field, that's what I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. Scott, who would you say has been your biggest influence in what you do and why you do it? Oh, it's tough to name any individual person. I've been gifted with a lot of mentors. A very early one for me was Joe Valentine, who was elected in 1984 for the Nuclear Disarmament Party and went on to fight and win two more elections and ended up as one of the founders of the Greens, the Greens WA and then the Australian Greens. And she, for me, was a real role model as for what an activist legislator looks like. Somebody who's got one foot in social movements. She was arrested going over the wire at Pine Gap while she was in the Senate. And yet she's also doing committee work on the treaties committee and she's also debating bills and she's also using her Senate office as a way of opening doors for social movements that she was working with to the parliamentary process. So if I'm forced to choose only one person, it would certainly be Jo because she wrote the book on how to use that place in a rather different way. And yeah. Yeah, she sounds incredible. Well, she is. And she's still involved, right? Like all that time later, she's still working. She's still a really important part of the movement in Perth. And she's inspired a lot of people. Yeah, amazing. The next one's a a bit of a philosophical question, and it's drawn from the work of a person called Kwame Apaya. And it asks, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. I think it's solidarity. The greatest social challenge at the moment is that we've been subjected to hundreds of years of divide and rule at every level. Divide and rule, dividing us between gender, dividing us along class lines, along race lines, along ethnic lines, along sectarian lines. This incredible bombardment of engineered division. Some of it is so subtle we don't even notice that it's there. And it is actively preventing the formation of a planetary civil society movement. Every time one looks as though it's about to get somewhere, something happens to disrupt it and fragment it. I genuinely think the biggest challenge that we face is that it's one of division, how to build solidarity that's meaningful and real across these borders between language, between geography, between genders, between races, in a way that actually builds power. It's not dissipative, but it's constructive. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? What a terrifying thought. (laughs) I'd probably fret and be really awkward about it and overthink it, which is what I feel like I'm doing. (laughs) I don't want anybody to have that power. I would probably say, get a good rest, please. And you're not alone. Shout if you need help. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay, 
a couple of last things. Where is your favorite place on earth? I know you've been to far flung places, but where's the place that you'd love to be if you could choose? A little bush block on the far south coast of New South Wales. Right now, that's the place. Beautiful. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading The Democracy Project by David Graeber. So he's a really fascinating anarchist writer who wrote a book on debt, which I quote, actually, I quote David a couple of times in the book. He was one of the sort of founders or originators of the Occupy movement. And he was a great kind of strategic thinker, but he was also a practitioner. And I think that's what I've been seeking out is people who think about social movements and how they work and how they confront power, but also he's actually out there being tear gassed. He's in the thick of things and he knows what it looks like close up. There's a bit of a theme there with uh, Joe Valentine as well. Yeah. Yeah. What about podcasts? Do you listen to them? I, I very rarely do. I don't know if it's just because I'm less of an acoustic person. I've never developed the habit of listening to podcasts in a systematic way, unless I'm with somebody who recommends one and then I've than I do. But God, the last thing I listened to at any great length was my dad wrote a porno. So it's not that I don't. And I, I enjoy it when I come across a good one. But it's for some reason, it's just not not something that I think to do. I'm more of a reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's something that's dropped off for me personally, just being in COVID and not moving around, just just kind of being in one place. Well, Scott, it's been wonderful to chat through all these incredible theories and concepts and practices and to explore all of those threads in your book. I genuinely really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. And I want to thank you for your time and for sharing these deeper insights with us. Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure. And where can we buy the book or find the book? As far as I can tell, it's everywhere. It's gone into shops. You can order it on Black Ink. So that's Black I-N-C Ink. Their website has the ability to order it. They'll post it directly to you. But it appears, as far as I can tell, to be in all of the good bookshops that are around the place. Excellent. And where can people find, follow or get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. I don't really play much on Facebook anymore for various reasons that it could be the subject of a different podcast. But yeah, I'm still reasonably present on Twitter and on Instagram. Excellent. And what's your handle there on Twitter? It's just at Scott Ludlam in both places. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Scott. It's been wonderful. That's been really great. Thanks for chatting. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jaja Wurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, nonprofit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.